Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome on my show, Brent Bennett, PhD. Brent, you are the policy director for Life Powered, an initiative for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, quest to raise Americans' energy IQ. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you, Kim. Good to see you again. Well, you know, you've been on the show for, uh, it's been a while, but I'm glad to have you back on the show because what you guys are doing at the foundation is a, a lot of good work. I don't necessarily know if our listeners really know how great of a job you guys are doing in the area of energy, but it takes all of us, I think, together uh, to try to make a difference on helping increase that IQ that you guys talk about. Before we get started, today, the show, I want to cover fossil fuels. Um, You guys have put out a recent uh, report. Data shows that uh, banning fossil fuels will not stop climate change. Uh, You guys also released another article talking about ESG in China. Um, You know, is there a connection there? And then lastly, uh, we've talked a lot about electric vehicles, and I want to stay on that path. But let me introduce Um, you to our listeners. You um, uh, regularly speak to policymakers, energy experts, and industry associates across the country. Uh, You are responsible for research, fact-checking, and spearheading many of the team's policies and regulatory initiatives. Um, And you've written extensively on how America can improve its environment while growing its energy use and on future energy technologies. You also have an MES and PhD in mineral science and engineering from the University of Houston in Austin and a BS in physics from the University of Tulsa. Um, Your research, graduate research focused on advanced chemistries for utility scale energy storage systems um, until you joined the foundation. You are one smart cookie. And so I'm glad to have you on the show. Uh, Welcome back. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So briefly, tell us about the mission of uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation. Yeah, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So we we don't do political campaigns, but we do policy research and advocacy. Um, I like to think of it as, you know, we we do a lot of lobbying, but we're not a lobbying group in the normal sense, right? We don't represent an industry or a particular company or anything like that. We really represent a group of people, our supporters, who are united by common principles, right? Common conservative principles. And we work across all different policy areas. Um, there's there's fewer policy areas that we don't touch <laughs> these days because um, we might even be getting into agriculture late in in the next uh, session, which we've never done before. Um, but when it comes to you know founding issues, we're we're uh, education and tort reform, um, and we have a litigation team uh, that does a lot of uh, litigation litigation efforts, particularly you know suing the government. Um, and then we have energy is one of our big issues. Criminal justice reform is also a, a big issue of ours. So you name it, we do it. Uh, and right. uh, and it's a it's a great organization. And and really the outside of D.C. Uh, definitely the largest organization of our kind in the country outside of D.C. I just can't say enough to our listeners. You know, they need to follow your group, social media. You guys release some amazing articles. They're all research based. 
Um, this is not, you know, uh, helter skelter, you know, but we're going to talk about some of that in today's show, but yeah. it really is fact-based, which is what you do. And so the stuff that's really being released is common sense in a time where there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that in our political circles, you know, in the geopolitical, and this is globally. So it's really hard, I think, for someone to say this isn't really happening, um, but it might not be happening the way that they it's being sold to them. And that's why your group is great um, because it really does take a look and, and says, and, you know, and, and you guys write about it. This is not making sense. So we're going to get into that. Let, let's, let's get into some of the, the research you guys have been putting out. Um, we all remember the Chinese spy balloon. Um, it went through multiple States. It was just freewheeling out there, just blowing and going and um, our elected officials did not seem to have uh, any idea what to do with it. But uh, it was an obvious infiltration into America. Um, you guys are claiming that China's role in the environmental, social and governance, which is better known as ESG, which is under fire right now in, for a lot, in a lot of different areas. But over the past few weeks, it has become apparent that the ESG agenda um, is the China ESG agenda, according to you guys. Um, so I want to get into uh, what is their agenda. And I also want to look and see if it's followed by money um, or uh, what are the potential motivators of why they're so involved in the ESG movement. So so tell me, um, you know, it's no secret that China gives a lot of money to these universities. They give a lot of money. Uh, they have a lot of uh, exchange students that come to our country, and some of them have been found to be spies spying for that country. Not all of them, so please don't send me any emails about I'm saying all Chinese students, exchange students are spies. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. But I worked with a lot of them. There, a lot of them are good people, you know. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to say, but is there a problem? Why is China so involved? Was that Chinese spy balloon just the start? So talk to me about uh, the article that you guys released on China. Yeah, um, it's it's really uh, it's really a function of you know the Chinese wanting to have control over uh, you know their entire future, right? So the and, and the Communist Party's you know desire to continue itself into perpetuity, right? So this this involves you know really having uh, you know the Chinese look at it from the standpoint of having control over all their sources of technology and. Um, and minerals and manufacturing and so on. So they um, they don't view things really from a, the same way we do, where we have alliances, trading partners, so on. It's it's more about them having complete control, and so that extends a lot into the energy space, where they want to have control, um, particularly over their own energy future, right, and their own source of energy. And the U.S.'s ability to produce energy and export it to the rest of the world is kind of a, a, a problem. From from the Chinese standpoint, because of because China doesn't have a lot of uh, it doesn't have as diverse a mix of energy resources we do. They have they have a fair amount of coal and they have a lot of minerals. They don't have hardly any oil and gas in China. It's a very big mm -hmm. geopolitical problem for them. And so, to the extent that you know they to the extent that you know we weaken our our ability to produce our own energy. Um, strengthens their position in the global energy sphere, and it makes us more reliant on the, the types of energy that they specialize in, right? So they have a lot of access to the minerals that are needed to make wind and solar um, manufacturing batteries and so on, right? So it's in their geopolitical interest. 
for, for us to become more reliant on those sources because it weakens our reliance on what we have more of, which is fossil fuels, right? Well, there's the name of the game and we're going to drill down into it. So it's in China's best interest to get us to not produce good old shale here and, and have a solid energy policy producing energy for the world, oil and gas specifically. Um, and, and it's really, you know, what I'm hearing you say is it's it's falling into a lot of different categories. The categories are uh, you know, wind and solar are being, uh, we're being told that that's the future. And I guess a lot of people really don't understand how has it become a problem in the United States so severely that our universities, our elected officials, everyone is saying the same thing, which is um, we need to get off uh, oil uh, and natural gas and move towards these non-reliant at this moment type of uh, energy sources, electric vehicles, solar and wind. Um, in your article, you talk about testifying that Jason Isaac, who's been on the show, testified in Indiana, supporting a bill um, uh, calling for uh, fiduciary responsibility to take precedence over political ideology in the pension fund management. And at the hearing uh, in this article, it says that the Bankers Association showed up and touted research done by Wharton School of Business that the research claimed that the cost could increase significantly if the bill was passed. From that, there was an article in the Houston Chronicle, also a study that came out of the University of Pennsylvania. Tell me about uh, specifically uh, those the, the media's coverage of this and the University of Pennsylvania, along with the Federal Reserve System. Um, I want you to break it down for us to help us understand what specifically happened um, in, in this article and the research that came out from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, yes, well, that research was referring to um, the two bills that we passed in Texas back in 2021, so two years ago, Senate Bill 13 and Senate, and Senate Bill 19, which basically prohibited the state from contracting with uh, companies that discriminate against uh, uh, energy producers and also against firearms manufacturers. So 13 was energy and 19 was firearms. Um, the, the paper was basically what I like to call uh, taxpayer-funded opposition research. <laughs> so it's the type of work that you know we do all the time, right, in, in doing research to support or oppose bills. Um, in this mm -hmm. case, but it was in this case, of course, it was you know two uh, you know two researchers who were on the taxpayer dole doing this. Uh, so that's that that's a bit of a problem in and of itself when we have that kind of thing going on, um, trying to, you know, trying to develop research. You know, our, our academy is developing research that basically directly used to support or kill bills. Um, that's, you know, but that's what that was. Um, so now to get down into it, um, you know, basically the 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 way the research was what it was doing was saying, OK, you know, and, and there is and there is a cost to changing, you know, contractors, right, or to excluding contractors from your universe, right? You may not always go with the lowest cost person. Now it was now the 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 researchers saying this is going to cost us in the hundreds of millions every year. Uh, now whether that's the case uh, remains to be seen. But he was basically taking taking an extrapolation from you know the first several months worth of data on the the changeover after these laws were implemented and basically extrapolating that all the way into the future. Now what we've seen over the last couple of years is that you know the markets have adjusted. Um, we still have the the focus of that research is on the municipal bond markets, which is a huge part of 
of uh, what the bill impacts that, you know, that the particularly financial institutions, a lot of their business with the state and local governments has to do with underwriting municipal bonds. It's a big business. And so that's what that research was talking about was the cost of that market. Um, and what we've seen is that there's still over 60 companies that operate in the Texas municipal bond market. And only a few companies were excluded based on that, on those bills, um, yeah. a few of the larger ones. And the rest, of the, the rest of the market's still very competitive. And so we've seen that adjusting. So I think there's a, there's a very careful balance we want to strike between, you know, not doing business with certain entities that are trying, that are you know, pushing policies that harm the state, but also not harming ourselves too much in the process, right? So there's a long-term benefit, I think, especially politically to pushing back on this. And we have to balance that against some of the short-term costs. And I think we're finding that balance. Um, the funny thing about a lot of like the bill in Indiana, for example, that was just dealing with um, state pensions and how state pensions manage their investments. It had nothing to do with actually the research that was promulgated out of Pennsylvania. Well, hold on. When we get back from, from yeah. break, I want to talk about the specific research and, and how much money that university got from China. Um, yeah. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Wolfpatch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to an old patch radio show. My guest today is Brent Bennett, PhD, a public policy director for Life Powered, an initiative from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Brent, before the break, I wanted you to tell me a little bit about uh, an article that you guys released. It was it's really just talking about the ESG debate. Um, and y'all's organization is, is somewhat leaning towards China has a lot of involvement in why ESG, this uh, environmental social governance, is playing out and how it really does benefit them if they can get us to that point where and they, you know, I think that they've done a great job Um with uh, a lot of companies jumping on board with ESG and the policies. And now uh, it's these unintended consequences that no one thinks about when they're implementing or wanting to jump on board with something that now they have a problem themselves. Recently, uh, in your article, you talk about the Houston Chronicle. Um, after you guys went and testified in Indiana for trying to push, uh, you know, fiduciary responsibility more than political ideology. The Houston Chronicle took the research from the University of Pennsylvania and the Federal Reserve System and basically showed you guys are showing numbers that Texas uh, cites incurring an additional 300 million to 500 million in interest on 31.8 billion in bonds if Texas passed a law prohibiting the use of ESG to taxpayer fund investments. Then the university, that study that was released, uh, the new analysis showed um, that there's something, uh, I want you to tell us about the Sunset Project because I'm not sure if I really understand it. I know it's a nonprofit focused on climate change, but their involvement is on the other side of this saying that we need to move away from oil and gas. But at the same time, and I know this is just kind of really chaotic, but at the same time, China, after this project, this, this nonprofit um, does their stuff, China winds up invest giving um, about $30 million to the University of Pennsylvania. And just a few months before the new study was released, by the University Wharton School of Business, they hosted an ESG initiative. My question is, is this just all by coincidence that these things are happening, that the University of uh, Pennsylvania produces this report for, and, and then they get a, a gift of $30 million. What is in the University of Pennsylvania's research on ESG? 
Uh, well, it's just what I was describing before the break where they're looking at, you know, the trying to gauge the financial impact of these bills that we pass. And they're trying to say that this is going to cost us a ton of money. Right. And so basically saying that the fight, the fight against ESG for Texas and other states is not worth it. Right. So and what we've been doing since we passed these bills in Texas has been going around to other states because other states have had a keen interest in passing similar legislation to ensure that they also aren't promoting the mm -hmm. ESG agenda. Right. So that's um, so that's kind of the the university. So the the professor and the and the researchers that that worked on this project, were, their interest was in kind of uh, providing again providing opposition research in a sense to to our efforts to uh, promote these policies in other states. Now the, the 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 China connection there is yeah there there is I think I think it's uh, it's it's less of a conspiracy more than an alignment of interests where you have. Um, you know, you have environmental groups. You put that very well, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Right? I might have come at it from a conspiracy. It's just an alignment of what makes sense numbers and sense. Yes. Right. Well, it's it's an alignment of interest that that is that is um in a, that is definitely uh bordering on conspiracy, right? So you, you think about it, they're you know, the environmental groups that want us to get rid of fossil fuels and the P and their allies and you know in academia, right? Um, you know, there the the whole focus is on really, and this goes to my research about how you know the U.S. banning fossil fuels won't impact climate change, right? Our role within within the the global you know energy picture and also global emissions is not not that large. Um, the developing world, particularly China, India, and so on, are the are the nations that are that are vastly growing their energy use and their use of fossil fuels, and so. Um, but the environmental groups, their focus is on us, you know, on, on you know, internally the U.S. getting us off of it and spending trillions to do that um, and, you know, paying for our sins of industrialization and so on. Right. And they're not focused on the rest of the world. That's that's growing its emissions use. So there's an alignment of interest there between these people who want us for various reasons, want us to stop consuming our fossil, fossil fuels and to, to consume less energy. And and those, you know, those entities, the countries out there that want to grow their energy use. Right. And don't want to be restricted in those ways. Right. So that's what's that's what's coming together here. And um, and you have, you know, the, the, the Chinese have a very uh, you know benefit a lot when we basically uh, reduce our ability to manufacture goods and services here because it makes us more reliant on them. Um, and so when they when they give money to support, you know, research that is, um, you know, saying, well, we should be, you know, our air quality is bad and we should be, you know, tightening our air quality standards. Right. The um, the Harvard School of Public Health that's still involved in this has a very big uh, funding component that comes from Chinese uh, nationals and, from, you know, maybe from the Chinese government itself. Right. So that's, you know, saying when, when they're saying, oh, we have to make our air quality better. Well, our quality is dozens of times better than what it is in China. Right. But they want us to continue to tighten our standards so that they have a competitive advantage, right? So that's what's going right. on. That's it's this alignment. It's this alignment of interest that naturally produces these types of, of um, you know, flow of money and, and and type of research and advocacy. And now that you've said it, Brent, that this is just another way of ensuring that we are less. Uh, or have less ability to provide uh, and, and continue to work with the world to solve the climate change problem. Um, I'm not 
I'm going to say that the climate change problem is one thing, but when we have all of this going on, it makes you wonder if the climate change debate is even real. Is that also part of this whole thing? And I'm not going to get into that on this show, but I'm going to, I want you, now that you said that, I want to start putting a brick on top of brick to show exactly what you just said. This is done by a design because in the last show I had, we were talking about China's um, amount that they release into the air of their admissions. And it by far blows every single country away, including India. They are by far the worst polluters on the planet. And yet we live on one planet, one world, you know, listen, listeners, picture a big world. We all live on it together. How can one country not be concerned? No one in the world is quite concerned about pulling China in. They kind of do what they want. And yet other countries, United States, Europe, are following these paths. And and, and we are um, good citizens of the world, as we should be. But it kind of just seems very disingenuous. Um, yeah. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Wolfpatch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. And we're back. You're listening to a Noel Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Brent Bennett, Policy Director of Public Policy Foundation, the, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Brent, before the break, um, you know, I, I was telling you we had Rick Cashel on the show. Um, they were very um, adamant that they are not doing anything to oil and gas. They support the oil and gas industry and the stocks, but that they are, they leave it to their uh, they leave it to the po- the the stockholder has the right to purchase whatever they want to purchase, and that's where they left it at. Pretty much, it's not us; it's whoever's purchasing their stock can purchase whatever they want. This is true. Um, however, there does seem to be a lot of BlackRock seems to have a lot of interest in China as well. Um, and so, I want you to tell us um, there seems to be favoritism in giving Chinese companies better ESG scores than American companies. Give us the involvement in BlackRock, along with, you know, other financial institutions that seem to be boycotting the oil and gas uh, sector. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand what uh, investment companies do and what other types, you know, kind of their role within the financial industry, right? So what he's talking about is he's saying, well, yes, they they don't they don't determine whether you know, uh, they talk about divestment, right? So they don't determine whether to, you know, their shareholders divest from fossil fuels or not. But what they do, what they do have control over is um, the the money that you give to BlackRock when you invest in one of their ETFs or their mutual funds is then they go and they go and engage with companies and say, well, you know, you should, um, you know, you should reduce your emissions for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, and a lot of times they'll, they'll go engage with those companies. And then if the companies don't act the way that BlackRock wants them to, they can vote their board members out. Uh, and so this has happened, you know, hundreds of times over the past several years as BlackRock has, you know, doubled down on these policies, right? So that's, their role is really the fact that they, they, they use your money that you invest with them to engage with companies in certain ways. 
that debate effectively advocating for policies that that sanction fossil fuels, right? So they're not divesting from fossil fuels, but they are they are still actively actively sanctioning fossil fuels in this way. That's how I describe it. Use the word sanctioning, right? And so that's what really has to stop is kind of this 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 use of shareholder money to engage in policy advocacy, and that's also shows you know how does how BlackRock um, in, it gets involved with. Um, you know, big uh, climate action groups, right? Political advocacy and so on. So it's really, um, so that's really kind of their role. Now there's another problem too within the investment industry uh, and that is uh, and that is the rating agencies, right? So there are um, groups like um, MSCI and S&P that give, give out ESG ratings. And a lot of times these rating agencies really don't have a lot of information on Chinese companies. And they therefore don't really give good ratings. Um, they have a lot of information on U.S. and European companies, right? So we have these, you know, extensive ESG scores for, U- for U.S. companies that effectively, you know, penalize or re- reward companies for certain actions, right? But there's very little about um, China, right? And there's very little um, investment, direct inve- foreign investment in mainland Chinese companies, right? So it's um, so it's definitely this case of we're kind of penalizing ourselves and making ourselves less competitive through these measures, and that benefits China, right? So again, it's this alignment of interest between the people that want to penalize us and our activities, and then the Chinese that want to that want to improve their own competitive advantage. And earlier in the show, you you said it specifically that we have a problem with um, investments in. Um, you know, who is aligning with who and why is there seems to be an initiative to stop so much U.S. oil production here in the United States. And and, and it does seem to work in the favor of China, as you said earlier, if they can manage this on us, it lowers, first of all, or makes us dependent on foreign oil, takes us back where we were. Um, It also makes us, in my opinion, less solvent as a nation. Um, it could also lead into national security issues. I don't see this as being in the best interest of us. In your article, you guys say the best interest of American families isn't the goal of ESG movement. If you peel back the layers of the onion, it's clear Wall Street isn't the only one pushing the lefty's agenda. It's fighting for China's agenda. The People Republic of China has given over $30 million to the University of Pennsylvania just a few and just a few months before this study was released by the University of Wharton School of Business, the same uh, school that hosted the ESG initiative. It goes on to talk about BlackRock and with BlackRock, they, you know, they didn't want to openly talk about and uh, they weren't going to answer questions when I asked them uh, or was going to ask them about their stocks that they own in PetroChina. What I'm trying to do is stop with the conspiracy and just showing, look, there are direct involvements here and there are reasons why SG is being pushed out. And as you said earlier, um, it is in China's best interest, not in ours, for uh, for the ESG model to continue to flourish in the United States as it only benefits China. I'm going to, when we come back from break, I want to close out this segment of covering ESG and what it means. And then I want to move on to another study that you guys released talking about uh, fossil fuels and how they are not going to change anything in the way of climate change. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to a new World Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to a new All Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Brent Bennett, PhD, and also public policy director for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Brent, 
this is an interesting article um, that Jason Isaac wrote, uh, y'all's director of Life Power. Uh, it, it's labeled the real China spies are attacking America from within. It's an important article that everybody should read if you live in the United States. Uh, I want to move on to climate change. So I'm going to allow you to close down this segment of what is the importance of ESG that we need to understand is really important for us. Yeah, the, the the issue with ESG is that it's really focused on getting the U.S. and Europe, developed countries, right, is where the focus of all this is, to reduce our emissions when those emissions are a small and declining part of global emissions, right? And so what we're doing is we're spending trillions of dollars on, you know, really high dollar technologies, right? I mean, wind and solar, everyone says are really cheap, right? But what's happening is that we can't, you know, we can't integrate wind and solar into the grid without expensive batteries and other things. It's actually more expensive, right? Hydrogen, all these things that are being subsidized, right? And so the companies and then the companies like BlackRock are out there chasing these subsidies, right? Um, it's in their interest to, to chase those subsidies. And so we have this, you know, funnel of just, you know, literally trillions of dollars, um, you know, going into money to reduce our emissions when the rest of the world is, is, thirsting for energy and they're going to get that energy from fossil fuels because fossil fuels are cheaper and more reliable. And so that's that's the dichotomy and until we until we get truly cheap like actually cheap low low carbon to zero carbon energy and can scale that for the rest of the world then all these trillions of dollars we're spending to reduce our emissions are effectively meaningless, right? Um, you know, U.S. emissions are are you know going to be you know less than less than seven six percent of global emissions. Same for Europe. Um, the rest of the world is where it's at, and that's what we need to focus on is getting them exactly. cheap zero emissions energy instead of trying to punish ourselves and into going net zero. Well, I don't think it's punishing ourselves. I mean, I have uh, Mike Howard uh, regularly on the show and, you know, he talks about uh, uh, positive energy and, you know, he says, you know, Kim, there are millions of people still that are in energy poverty and mm -hmm. you cannot be a country that's thriving if you don't have access to energy. And that's we right. know that wind and solar are unreliable at this moment. Uh, Kim is not attacking them personally. It's just saying at some point, maybe they really step up and are evolving, but as of right now, they're not. So then we look and we see, you know, earlier in the show, I mentioned for our listeners, I, I, we're just normal people, but you know, it is one world and it's very, it's hard to understand how we are, we've gotten past, we're talking all these different debates and very uh, hard topics to understand ESG for the average Joe. And yet the average Joe does get, we live on one world. And if we've got one country that's blowing and going, uh, they are the biggest polluters on the planet and no one says anything. I'm not I'm not trying to attack China. I'm saying a fact. Why? What is the conversation about climate change all about then? Because to me, it seems like we're not really having a conversation that's common sense. We're having something that lives in cartoon land that like, oh, let's look at what the United States is doing or Europe is doing, but let's not look at what China or other countries um, that are bigger polluters. Let's help them. They need to focus too. And then let's help the countries that don't even have access to reliable energy and let's help them out of poverty. But something tells me we follow the money and then we get the reason why all this is happening. Let's change gears quickly and talk about U.S., another article you guys wrote, new data shows U.S. fossil fuel ban will not stop climate change. <clears throat> you guys uh, wrote an article, you released it. It was a data from a model of the assessment of greenhouse gas uh, induced climate change. 
Can you tell us a little bit about as as we're on this, you know, path of uh, climate change and net zero by 2050 and um, lowering admissions while we're doing all these wonderful things here in the United States and China is is, is not doing their fair share. What did this article that you guys released, what was that about? Yeah, the idea there was to not not to really make any uh, statement about climate models or anything themselves. We just took uh, a simple climate model that's that's widely used by researchers to assess the impact of different emissions reductions uh, on global temperatures and other factors. And that's the magic model, uh, originally developed by our own EPA, but then now it's a kind of international consortium. Um, and just said, okay, let's just look at kind of the simple math of what if we take out U.S. emissions and, you know, starting in, say, going net zero by 2040, net zero by 2050, and what is the impact of that going to be over the course of the next century, right? And again, just like I said earlier, um, you know, our, our emissions are kind of a small and declining part of the global share because the rest of the world is growing their energy use dramatically, right? And so that's basically what the model says is that if we you know, if we take out our emissions by 2050, it would be less than one-tenth of a degree difference in global temperatures. So if you think about, you know, global temperatures have already risen one degree over the past 100 plus years. They're going to, you know, the model says, whether, you know, now again, whether the model is accurate or not, who knows, you know, but the model says it's going to rise another degree over the course of the next 80 years, and taking out U.S. emissions is less than one-tenth of that, right? It will change that by less than one-tenth. Um, so it's, it's really almost indiscernible um, compared to what the rest of the world is doing. And I think that's that's the message there. Um, again, just like I said earlier, we're spending trillions of dollars to try and get rid of that little slice of pie. Uh, and what, what is the rest of the world doing? Right. That's I'm going to quote. Let me quote you in your article, because I know you're not looking at it. Do you? <clears throat> it says the vast majority of greenhouse gases admissions for the rest of the world of the 21st century will come from outside the developing country, particularly China, India, and Southeast Asia. Now, that's not, um, it, they need it. They need access to grow their economies. That's great. But again, when we talk about climate change, we live on one planet. So uh, how do we bring them on board when China is opening up new coal factories? And I, I really hate to sound like I'm just attacking China, because, but I'm just trying to make our listeners understand we are paying a very hefty price for our policies that are being uh, pushed through Washington, our elected officials. And if anything that I say on my show is we really need to have an understanding before we go push a button to elect somebody that, you know, they need to have a solid energy policy and maybe, maybe it should be G imagine this science-based as opposed to um, a scare based tactic or someone's biggest donor um, and we are really paying a price. So in this model that you talked about and in this article, so you're saying that all the, the information that you have, it's not going to really change um, the significance of the climate change debate or anything um, dramatically. And you talk about it here in these numbers. Let me take a quick break. When we return, we're going to get on this. And I want to close out the show with EVs, electric vehicles, too, because you all also released another great article on that, too. Uh, let's take a quick break. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. 
In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to texasmutual.com slash T-X-O-G-A. Yeah. And we're back. You're listening to a new old patch radio show. My guest today is Brent Bennett, who is the policy director for life powered, who is part of the Texas public policy foundation. Brent, um, we're going to move on to EVs. I just want to close down the, the, the data that is on your website. You know, everybody needs to visit texaspolicy.com or of course, look up life powered, Google it um, to see these articles that you guys have released to, to find the data and see it in closing out this section. So basically what I heard you say is no matter what we do, According to you know, this research, it's going to have very little impact on the climate, right? Right. You want to- yeah, the U.S. and the developed world in general, yes. Okay, so, so... Yeah, I mean, we're talking for the U.S. less than a tenth of a degree difference over the course of the next 80 years, and that's it's barely measurable. And you're saying the projections are that we're going to increase our temperature no matter what we do? Well, there's, there's def- I mean, there's definitely natural variability within the climate system, but also just, yeah, the rest of the world is, is going to consume more energy. Um, mm-hmm. And we can't deny them of that. And so it's either we deny the rest of the world energy or we or we go ahead and adapt to whatever climate change occurs. It's a much better option, right? Let's adapt the way that we have over the past 100 years. Uh, we've adapted very well. Uh, climate deaths are down 98% over the last 100 years <laughs> uh, as the climate's warm because we've gotten better at adapting to it. And so let's continue to do that rather than try and deny ourselves and deny the rest of the world access to affordable energy. I'm glad you said that because I don't really think that a lot of people really understand that there is still a, a, a large part of the, the world who doesn't have access to basic drink, clean drinking water and energy. And these people right. don't live as long as us and, and their children they have a higher mortality death rate. And we need to think about those things um, as well. Let's switch gears. I've been talking a lot about electric vehicles. There's been a lot of research coming out um, on them, how much, uh, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a lot of money in there in rebates. And the car dealers, <clears throat> excuse me, are jumping in line on that um, and getting rebates. at the. At, but the numbers are showing how much billions of dollars they're losing um, in, in manufacturing electric vehicles. Ford, I specifically looked at their numbers on that show, which I'm not going to go into, but they were losing like $31,000 a vehicle, but they're still pushing forward to produce more electric vehicles. In your article, it says uh, EVs aren't the answer to the climate worries. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what your article is saying in here about the electric vehicle debate. Good, bad, what's happening with the electric vehicles, in your opinion? Yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, electric vehicles. So electric vehicles are really what they're able to replace are what we call light duty vehicles, right? So the cars you and I use to commute in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, heavier transport. First of all, transportation only accounts for about a third of U.S. emissions, right? And light duty vehicles are maybe less of that, right? It's it's 
um, you know, heavy duty trucks, trains, and so on are the are the rest of it. And we haven't figured out a way to, you know, to run those on electricity very very well, right? So, mm-hmm. so we're talking about you know maybe one sixth. So that that little number that I talked about, right? Uh, the U the U S emissions would would impact temperatures by less than one tenth of a degree. Now, mm-hmm. we're, you know, EVs are impacting one sixth of that. <laughs> so that's if even we, less. Right. If we go, yeah, right. So, you know, we're, so maybe, you know, a little more than a hundredth of a degree, right. So, so um, even, so even if and that's, even if we get to hundred percent EVs in the near future, right. Which is a, what you're talking about with the car makers is they have a huge supply chain problem to scale up the manufacturing of EVs um, because we have, you know, a, a, an auto manufacturing industry that's been built over the course of a hundred years. And now all of a sudden you're trying to change it over in the span of about 10 to 15 years. Right. And so the scale of investment that's required for that is enormous. Um, and again, for, for what? Right. Um, and we even we, we have other research that talks about how you know, when we took half the cars off the road during covid. The air quality in our cities really didn't change at all because it's so good already that mm-hmm. taking half the cars off the road doesn't have a huge impact. So, again, what are we doing this for? Right. That's that's the that's the question. And, and it's really for an ideology. I think it's, it's the, this ideology that somehow EVs are good. And fossil fuel fuel fossil fuel vehicles are bad, you know. And there's also the there's also the fact. The last thing I'll say is that you know you can, you know, the the, the fact that we don't have more hybrids is remarkable um, because hybrids have you know they you can use a very small battery like you know one eightieth the size of an EV battery to increase the efficiency of your gas vehicle, but hybrid but hybrid cars don't get as many subsidies. So the car car the auto, and they don't get all the regulatory credits that e, that EVs get. We're going to have some research come out about that pretty soon. So the auto manufacturers aren't incentivized to build those, um, and that's what the environmental left wants because hybrids still run on on you know, fossil fuels. Right. So, yes, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I love, I love the hybrid, all these things I can go on. It's absurd. The policies that we're promoting. Right. Yes. And that's what this show is about is the absurdities because nothing makes sense. Um, <laughs> especially, you know, in, in Kim's world, because I'm like, okay, so let's, you know, the, the, the previous show we were discussing how, um, you know, we, we do not have the, uh, the capability of what the Biden administration, the policies coming down to make this tra- this change into EVs. They're not going to be affordable for the average person. Um, and it's going to get even harder on the indigent. Um, and we don't have the capability. We're relying more on China again because of the batteries and because of the minerals. And Ford is signing an agreement of a plant opening up in Michigan, specifically with China, to produce this. So, you know, we we, we had this discussion on even if even if they do that and even if we get going down this path, you know, you look down uh, Texas is huge where we tape the show. And I don't see any power stations to to power these vehicles like they need to be. Uh, to make this this change. So we don't have the even the infrastructure. And I guess the last thing is, well, why isn't the public system going to uh, EVs? They seem to be turning to wait, 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 wait for the little drum roll. They seem to be turning to natural gas, which is a great fuel um, that's clean burning. And so I, I can't understand how we've gotten so far down the road also with EVs are coming in and they're they're the way to go. But, you know, the reality is I've had a couple of hybrids and I loved them. They would turn off at the light, you know, then they turn back on when you take off the, your brake, you release the brake. They are very energy efficient. And, and you make a good point. Why aren't we building more of those? So <laughs> what happens? Are y'all going to do research on what happens when uh, when this gets passed through that we have like a lot more? Is there a possible real possibility that this is really going to happen, that we're going to start moving into massive amounts of EVs? Or is it just more numbers? We're losing trillions of dollars 
in bad investments. I mean, the manufacturers are doing the car dealer manufacturers because it's not their money. It's the taxpayer money, right? It's not Ford's money. It's our money. So do we get there? I mean, it's there, you know, there are natural advantages for light, again, light duty vehicles, right? That, you know, electric motors are efficient. EVs can, can work for those vehicles. So if we make batteries cheap enough, over time and batteries, batteries are getting cheaper, just much slower than you think, right? Or what but the media would leave you to believe. They think it's, you know, they're, they're acting like, well, this is gonna happen tomorrow, right? No, this yeah, takes yeah. decades, mm-hmm. decades. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm a believer in, and as a former battery engineer, I'm a believer that we can get there eventually uh, to where- Eventually. You know, eventually, right? But we're trying, again, we have this ideological push to make it happen now and to force it on people, right? And so what you're seeing is, you know, we're spending billions of dollars, hundreds of billions now in taxpayer subsidies, and the cars are still too expensive for most people to buy. So we're, you know, auto companies are having trouble selling enough of them. And it's not even going to have a real impact on the environment. Impact. Nothing. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's, so it's, it's, so that's the, yeah. So that's the problem is, you know, if we would just let the market work, we would have, you know, we would, we would improve fuel efficiency through hybrids. We would see more EVs. It would happen over time as, as the technology improves. Right. Um, and that, and, and it would do it in ways that benefit people. Um, but we're having government force feeding us policy, uh, and that's harming people and costing a lot of money. Thank you. Thank you so much for closing with that. Brent, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You guys keep up the good work. Anybody who wants to follow you guys, look and see what you're doing. It's Texas public, it's texaspolicy.com, or you can Google life powered. I think it's lifepowered.org as well. Thank you again for, for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Kim. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.